Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. Today is the 18th of the 11th. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Michael, how are you? I'm very well, Gary. Thank you very much. So, Michael, two things happened today I want to talk about. And one thing happened last week, but is very funny. So we'll talk about it anyway. Now, the two things that happened today, one was kind of infuriating and one was funny because of what it tells us about ourselves and what we deserve, which is not a lot. (laughs) I know, yeah, go on. Criminal Justice Hate Speech uh, Bill was uh, being discussed in the Shannon today. It was a... um, I'm not a man with uh, an unduly high opinion of the Shannon, Michael. No. I view it somewhat like the appendix. Occasionally people tell me it has some use, but... People make compelling reasons to cut it out with scalpels. But uh, I, don't, I don't hate it. I don't dislike it. I, many of the senators, I think, have contributed to public life. And there is some value in it. I may have to review that, having listened to the debate on the second stage of the, uh, what I'm just going to call the hate crime bill. You were unimpressed. No. No, Michael. I'm unimpressed with most debates. This went from unimpressed to... A feeling of active belittlement of the Senate. And I, I'll explain why. The the criminal justice hate crime bill. I show that to a number of legal professors, barristers and solicitors. And the descriptions of the quality of that bill, I won't repeat on air because occasionally we need to talk to politicians. Mm-hmm. Suffice it to say, it was not well received. It was considered to be on the face of it, unconstitutional. One of the law professors said that, and when I asked him under what provision, he just said, no, no, it's just going to be unconstitutional. As if to say, it doesn't even matter what provision, it's simply not getting true. (laughs) Is, from a legal perspective, problematic, Michael. And many, many parts of it were picked apart. The fact that has, effectively, the perception of any one person could see you jailed if you were charged with an offence and that was found to be aggravated by any person claiming it. Whatever, the bill has has deep fundamental flaws. Of the senators who spoke today, two senators spoke out against it, both, I think, quite well, and both in very different fashions. But what was actually, I think, humiliating to the concept of the Shannon was this. Everyone in favour of the bill stood up and accepted that the bill's drafting was flawed. Deeply flawed in some cases, fundamentally flawed in others, absolutely unworkable in others, and then each said they would support it. Now, the Shannon should be a serious place for serious debate. This bill is so poorly written, and I mean, any professional, legal uh, professional, that's kind of redundant, but you get what I'm saying, could have reviewed this bill and reworked it into something that I would disagree with, but at least say fundamentally makes sense. And I'll give you an example, Michael. The bill defines hate crime in the first section. It then redefines hate crime in the second section. The definitions are not the same. Now, I'm not a legal scholar, Michael, but I, you know, I did talk to legal scholars and they thought that might be problematic, given that preferably, and maybe this is them just being picky, they would prefer there was only one definition of what the crime actually was rather than two different ones. Well, yeah, 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 I don't think that's asking for too much. I mean, you say that, Michael. 
but this bill is in the Senate. So apparently, yes, it was absolutely too much to ask for. And so we have this, this dumpster fire of a bill going through and everyone standing up and talking about how important it is and, and how good it is that it be brought forward. It's just senator after senator. And no one kind of goes, surely there's a level of respect for the institution that requires you to at least write something that conforms to the requirements of base literacy. Well, I thought the whole thing about the whole thing about the Shannon was supposed to be is that that it is a, a house of revision, a house of review and of careful consideration, where shortly piece shortly worked out pieces of legislation that can arrive from the Dáil, and the wise women and men of the Shannon will use their intellects and their experience to rework those and to spot the the flaws and the problems. But you say you you, you said Gary that had this been done by legal profession. But my understanding was that you had at least well, a couple of solicitors involved in this and one professor of law in some way involved in the framing of this legislation. It certainly reads as if it was put together by the NGOs. But the problem is that the things the NGOs have wanted have been on the face of them totally unworkable. But even there, like things like redundant definitions or it not being clear what some of the terms in the bill actually refer to. I mean, the general response I got from people I showed this bill to, one of the lines was simply, the more I read it, the more confused I am about what is actually happening here. Well, what's happening here is we're taking this opportunity to tell people what decent, virtuous, nice, diversity-committed people we are. Professor Ivana Batchis, who's Professor of Criminal Law in Trinity, read Professor, I think, basically, it seemed to me, and I don't want to, to, to misconstrue what she said, and if I'm wrong, I, I apologise, she seemed to be saying that this was a very, very poorly drafted piece of legislation, which was virtually unworkable, but however, we should vote for it anyway. Am I being unkind? No, I think you're being very kind. That was pretty much what happened. And th- that was that wasn't just Batchik, but Batchik did go well. Yeah, but she's a professor of law in Dublin University. I mean, you would have thought that she would have had a, a higher standard uh, when it came to criminal law and framing criminal law legislation, that you want a certain degree of precision, accuracy, consistency, and clarity to that law. For this. Everyone, everyone on side was the same. Everyone, regardless of their legal background, pointed out that this bill is unworkable, it is badly done, it is, I, I think we, I would agree, pretty clearly just not a legal runner at all. And now, there was no vote at the end of this because they ran out of time, so it's actually been, there will be another debate on this probably next week. I don't think it's actually been scheduled yet when the when they will continue this. And it may be possible that some of these people will vote against it. But they all spoke in favour of it. The only two senators who didn't were Ronan Mullen, who gave a very, I think, very legalistic but quite well-rounded explanation of why this was just totally unworkable. Ronan is a lawyer, isn't he? I'm not sure if he's actively practising, but I think that is his background, yes. I think he studied law. And then you had uh, Sharon Keoghan, who is a newly appointed senator. She got in through the industrial and commercial panel, I think. Elected senator, just for... Not one of those people we just throw in there because they lost a uh, 
doll race, which is something not all of the people involved with this uh, bill can say. No, she's unusually... She won more races than is normally the case. Including in one local election winning a seat in two different areas. Yeah, which is not bad, in fairness. Hard enough win a county council seat, but she won two. It was two. beautiful just for the people going, is that, is that legal? Are you allowed? Yes, Are you, you allowed can to run that? multiple constituencies. Nothing stopping you. As, if you can put the money up, you can you can run it as many as you like. Yeah, it's just generally you don't win in both of them. No. But she she gave a less legalistic kind of defence. She talked more about um, identity politics, that this would enshrine identity politics in the bill. It was a much more kind of aggressive, less uh, collegial response to it yeah it, it also some fairly decent swipes at the current state of Fianna Fáil and the direction or the lack Which, of direction the Fianna Fáil has I think that the senator in question may have come or comes from what we like to call the, the Fianna Fáil so my understanding boom. is that Kyogen was on she wasn't just in Fianna Fáil she sat on the national executive and then she tried to get a nomination to run for Fianna Fáil and was unable to secure one and then she left the party and uh, she's run, she, I think she's been running um, general elections in Meath East for a couple of years. And I don't think she's ever gotten in on that, mm-hmm. but she did. She got into the Senate. So there you go. Um, it, was, it, was, it was a ridiculous debate. Absolutely ridiculous. And overhanging all of this is that the Department of Justice uh, public consultation on the... Uh, Incitement to Hatred Act, the prohibition on the Incitement of Hatred Act, is coming to an end. I think there's a white paper internally in the department at the minute, and they're going to publish something soon. Now, that bill isn't concerned with hate crime as such, it's hate speech, but massive overlap. And so, I think it was Ronan who pointed out that we have a full worked-on bill from the Department of Justice that will be coming down, or the advice on it. And why are we doing this now? This doesn't really seem to make any sense, the timing. Because we'll have that consultation down the road quite shortly. And I, I, I don't know. I, I thought it was effectively a mockery of the Shannon that a bill so poorly designed was treated seriously and was largely supported by senators. And frankly, I think that the senators who supported this bill Regardless of the fact that I disagree with them on whether or not this should be an act, to a degree disgrace themselves and the institution. Because this bill is not of a standard where it should in any way be supported. Yeah, I mean, leaving aside, shall we say, the the ideological or philosophical objections that you or I might have to this. Both of us in the last couple of days have been talking to barristers and solicitors and legal academics and it has been unremitting. I mean, in a way that I don't think I, we were saying before, either of us have ever seen in a commentary on a piece of drafting. It's been unremitting. The, the, the commentary coming back has been, this is not a salvageable piece of legislation. It's incoherent, it's confused, it's confusing. It refers to offences which are no longer offences. It defines it. In, in within two parts, it defines its the, the object of the, the of, of the legislation in two different ways. It's just all over the shop as it's as it stands. Probably, well, 
a number of people for, very forcibly not were of the opinion that wasn't probably but certainly unconstitutional and unconstitutional in such a way that you just appear before the Supreme Court and say lads uh, unconstitutional and the, the bench of the court were looked at and said yeah yeah un unconstitutional no need to go into the details it's just all over the place if it is like that and you know there's a fairly this is the opinion of a fair number of people then it Surely, even if you want to see this kind of legislation introduced for the sake of decency and the sake of the respect for the law, you say, listen, we know what your intent was in producing this, but we don't think that it really it meets the needs of what we want to do, nor does it meet the standard that we require as a legislative body as part of the parliament the parliament of the country we need to come back and with something be different something better than this and just quietly euthanize the thing but stand up in your two your, your two hind lens in, in the shadow and say we should we support this it's just that's to, to, to not mad. just support it but to eviscerate it and then support it because you like the general idea of it but that's what tells us what uh, to me that Gary. That's what tells us what this is about. That this isn't actually about legislation. This isn't about crafting uh, a law that meets some particular need. This is about making some kind of public declaration. It's a. This is a performative act. This is using the floor of the Shannon as a theatre in order to act out your your particular emotional attachment to a certain kind of position it's a, it, it this is this is not legislating this is performance this is theater no that's not to say listen people use the door they use the shadow theatrically all the time and that's not a problem but this this was just i want to say pure theater but pure theater maybe it gives a sense which is rather too positive. This was bad amateur theatre. This was the kind of play that wouldn't have got into the closed section from in in the village theatre groups in the amateur in the in the, in the amateur uh, drama thing for the little theatres around the country. That's that's particularly shocking, given that this bill doesn't even have cutouts for dramatic or artistic speech. <laughs> I think they they wouldn't even get it. They wouldn't even get points for the for the I scenery. Mean, th there yeah. is the debate about the hate crime bill, and, and obviously yes. I disagree with that on a fundamental philosophical level. But we can I think the pill is so bad that I can simply put that to the side and simply just go, on the technical level, this is disgraceful. It I mean this could be rewritten. Someone talented could rewrite this and make good arguments for its adoption and rewrite it in such a way that you would have to deal with those arguments. But this bill doesn't even get to the level where I want to deal with its arguments. It is simply so poorly done it shouldn't exist in the first place there was a quote i was sent from two different legal professionals when i asked what i also discovered this weekend is if you ask for if you ask a legal professional for an informal sort of uh opinion on something and then you send them this bill i think the average response i got was five pages long yeah i loved this i i talked to, to a couple uh more than a couple, but uh, there are two in particular that I asked. Listen, I just, I don't, I just want a general sense. I'm not looking for like, a, you know, if you're a barrister's written brief, just as they say, yeah, that's fine. I'll just 
knock something off very quickly. They came back, well, they came back when I rang them five days later. I said, yeah, yeah, I'm working on that. And they, I just want just two lines. No, that's not how they work. Not at least on this case. No, I think I, I, there was a sense of, yeah, we'll have a quick look at it. And then we're like, oh, we've looked at it. This is going to take some time. <laughs> but a quote that I got from two different people was a quote that was given down by uh, Seamus uh, Henshi, who's a former uh, Supreme Court judge. He died, I think, about a decade ago, maybe. But quite an influential judge. <laughs> There's a quote from him where he had ruled that a particular law uh, provision had breached the constitutional order. And the quote was that the provision was so arbitrary, so vague, so difficult to rebut, so related to rumour or ill repute or past conduct, so ambiguous in failing to distinguish between apparent and real behaviour of a criminal nature, so prone to make a man's lawful occasions become unlawful and criminal by the breadth and arbitrariness of the discretion that is vested in both the prosecution and the judge, and generally so singularly at variance with both the explicit and implicit characteristics and limitations of the criminal law as to the onus of proof and mode of proof, that is not so much a question of ruling on constitutional, the type of offence we are now considering, as identifying the particular constitutional provisions with which such an offence is at variance. <laughs> basically, <laughs> got that from two different people, and basically just, that's what I think of it. <laughs> that's, yeah, that, that was... Savage that's... response from a Supreme Court judge to anyone. You have to say that... He, he... It, it's 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 wonderfully wonderfully written. I mean, it's, it's not surprising that if you if you if you go looking for Seamus Henshi, you discover that he's that, and this isn't many judges in Ireland at least that you find that articles written entitled things like the judicial thought and prose of Mister Justice Seamus Henshi. Um, he was something of a stylist. I did very very influential judge in his time. He was on the, the bench for a long time, all through the seventies and the eighties. I would love uh, to see that legislator who piece. wrote that and had to sit there. Yeah, would you imagine? Whoever, I mean, a lot of the time, the, I mean, usually they're, 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 these things are done. Well, sometimes with it, legislators, but very often with help from clerks often, in the dawn. Yes. And there is the office, and, 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 and the office, the the drafting office, and other people. But somebody obviously was principally responsible for doing it, and you can just imagine. As this was, I mean, every sentence is like a blow. Not even sentence, every clause in every sentence is a blow from a heavy stick. Bang, bang. This is not something you recover. This is not the kind of decision that comes down and then the next time somebody needs to draft something, they come running to you and go, uh, no, no, listen, Frank, no, I'm fine. Listen, no, 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 you're grand. I know, I, I, I'll do this myself. Just, you I know. Just, I just, I can't. Let me know. No, 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 I understand. No, no, I, yeah, sure. I mean, Henchy's like that. No, I didn't take a thing out of that, not at all. But it is a fantastic judgment. And if that is, as you say, the response of two people to this, then it's we're up, we're up in high class. We're up at a high class level of defective, uh, defective drafting here. Yeah, I, 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 once I start getting the first responses of basically it's unconstitutional. And so clearly unconstitutional, we're not even going to figure out under what grounds it's unconstitutional. It's just unconstitutional. I figured that this was not going to be a well-regarded bill. No. <laughs> and yet, uh, it had nearly unanimous support in the in the Senate. Yeah, well, yes. There you go. I know you're fond of saying, and I, 
I would like to disagree, and I try to disagree in my heart all the time. But you know that, as you when you often point out that we tend to get the governments we deserve, we get the TDs we deserve, we get the legislators we deserve. That's a rather depressing thought when you see stuff like this. But you know what? Eventually, this bill, or a simulacrum of this bill, or a brother or a sibling of this bill, will come back to the Shannon and eventually will go to the Dáil, and I have. No doubt it will be passed, and I suspect it will be passed by a comfortable majority after not a whole lot of debate. I suspect that there will be feckal reporting on it in the newspapers. I don't know if I have heard or read any mention of this bill other than on this show and on Gripped. And I, I, I mentioned it to John, and then John wrote, I think, two opinion pieces on it. But it just, it, it appeared very suddenly. And it, it's moving quite quickly. But I don't think any, uh, I don't think I've, like, I don't think, I've seen nothing on it on the Times, the Independent, or TE. But it is, in its consequence and in its reach, possibly one of the, I mean, where to be implemented, which it absolutely will not be, and hopefully it dies somewhere in committee. But where to be implemented, it will be one of the most wide-reaching and impactful laws passed in the last decade of this state, possibly longer. So that probably seems like something that might be worth reporting. Well, yes, you, you, you thought it would be uh, worth commenting on. You thought, if nothing else, that you'd look at this and you think that there has to be some connection between this kind of legislation and this kind of disposition and, for example, forthcoming hate speech laws. Now, if nothing else, Surely people in the media, people, journalists, newspaper men, TV people should have some kind of a passing interest in legislation which is going to make certain kinds of speech illegal. I will. And this, yet this does not seem to disturb any of the... the uh, the fine men and women of the Irish media. They don't, they appear to accept this move with a degree of equanimity that is rather disturbing. Well, I think there is one bright side to this legislation, Michael, should something in this vein, with all the language regarding perception, be passed. Uh, and there's one very bright side, and it's this. It will be incredibly easy to weaponize, And I would, in fact, actively encourage people to weaponize it. I mean, let's say Orgie does something on uh, mother and baby homes. Make a complaint of hate speech against them. Say it's motivated by anti-Catholic prejudice. Hate crime under this legislation. Mm-hmm. Every Una Mullally article, I'm sure Fintan O'Toole will say something eventually. And just clog up the courts. Just as many people as possible. Because why not? If they want these laws, okay. It's it's we were talking about my favourite line about that you get the government that you deserve mentions line yeah. that democracy is the idea that the people know what they want and it's the job of government to give it to them good and hard. If this is what the government wants, I think it may be time for the public to give it to them good and hard. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, if that is destructive and simply you know unworkable. Well, surely that's something that legislators should have foreseen before implementing, and if they didn't, 
Well, then it's the job of the courts, Michael, to dutifully enforce the law. Oh, absolutely. Uh, that, that is, uh, and, I'm sure, I'm, and I'm sure they will do so. But, you know, Gary, uh, I don't know if this was the story we, you're planning on going to next. But you're talking about you're giving it to them good and hard and what, getting what we deserve. If you want, I, I can't think of a better example of the fundamental problems, if you like, of democracy and a situation where, well, you get what you deserve and now you're going to get it good and hard than we saw in Dublin County Council. I th- no, I, I think that is a fair point, except, weirdly enough, in that case, it's less giving it to the voters good and hard and giving it to everyone but the voters good and hard. So what we saw is we saw Dublin Council vote by an overwhelming majority. I think it was 40-something to whatever to uh, stop a very large build from going ahead. A build that they had provisionally agreed to beforehand and now they just sort of pulled the rug out from under it. And numerous excuses have been offered, uh, verging from the affordable housing wasn't quite affordable enough to, well, we want the land to remain in public ownership. And, uh, you know, the usual shit. The usual shit that I've heard every time a politician has stopped a large build, that there would be, you know, we'll get the public development to do it. I have a little thing I like to do, Michael, every you know, every now and then when I'm uh, bored. I have a little map. and uh, In it, I have pins. In yeah. Any place that a large housing development above 40 houses... Although sometimes I think I may on, on points wavered because I've been doing this for a while, has been cancelled by a politician. I put a little red pin in, and then if a public housing is built on that spot instead, I put a little green pin in. And Michael, I got to tell you, a lot of red pins. Not many. Not many green. Not many green. Just to be clear, what we're talking about for the for, for the dear listener, um, there was a proposal to go forward with Dublin County Council to what we call a public-private partnership on the uh, lander on the Oscar, the Oscar Trainer site, as it's being called. And the proposal would have resulted in 253 social homes, 172 affordable homes, 214 cost rental homes, and 214 private homes. Now, when this... Now, this plan has been a long time gestating as developments of this size and this nature tend to be they tend to take a long time and that's another question of why they take this amount of time and the the issues that are faced by developers trying to build houses in what is one of the most expensive cities in the world now to rent a flat in and has an increasingly large homelessness problem although covid covid maybe has a play is playing a role at the moment in reducing rents and reducing potentially losing homelessness, but leaving that aside. Over a period of several years, this has been developed and a number of people who voted against this proposal and went on social media and rejoiced and were glad and praised themselves and said, what a wonderful thing it is, we've done this. Not that long ago, Gary, we're saying, gosh, what a lovely development this is. 
Oh, isn't that park nice? I really like those buildings there. This is a great mixed use. Isn't this a wonderful thing? Aren't we? But no, the principle that somebody might make money out of it has become offensive. Now, has become offensive. Is offensive, has always been offensive to people, shall we say, on the far left. And we do have a far left, no matter what people like to say. We don't have anybody in Ireland involved in, in an elected position who is a member of the far right. We constantly hear about the danger of the far right, but we have people on the far left who are elected both to councils and indeed to the Dáil, and they fundamentally disagree with the idea that something like housing should be provided for by the market and that people should make money out of it. But along with those, Gary, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Fáil, who I would have thought have a history, don't they, of being rather pro-developer, pro-build, throw get the houses up, but apparently we have abandoned that notion because they're so fucking terrified of being perceived or being in any way connected towards development or building, I suspect, this is my suspicion, that they will just, this is what they do, be, throw their, oh no, no, it has to be. We have the Social Democrats, I believe, also involved, and I think even the Greens. The only people that voted for it were Fine Gael, basically. So it was interesting in that even the council's officials we're coming forward and saying, look, this is 850 houses. They're badly needed. We don't have the capability to build them ourselves. And if you reject this, it could be five to eight years before we'll get an opportunity to do something with public funding. And if we try and go to another developer for one of these things somewhere else in this region, are they going to want to get involved? Because, okay, we might say yes eventually or initially and then just pull the rug totally out from under you. And, well, then you're fucked. So, you know, thanks for playing. You did you, you saw, I'm sure you saw the comments uh, of the delighted individual saying, oh, and by the way, all the usual excuses that were trotted out. Well, it's nonsense to say that Dublin Corporation can't build these themselves. Dublin Corporation doesn't have the capacity to do this. They don't have the the workers, the tradesmen, the carpenters, they, they don't have the people. There is actually, at the moment, because so few people are left in the building industry in Ireland after the last great collapse of, of the 2008 collapse, so many of them either left the country or left building and went off and became taxi drivers or ice cream makers or cheese makers, that then we have a problem. And, the only people, the only people that can do this are going to be substantial developers. They're the only people that have the kind of infrastructure they can do this. Oh, well, they're, they're going to make money out of it. They're going to make money out of it. So we, we could do this with, on public land with public money, so we could do it cheaper. Now, you, did, I don't know if you saw the actual county, county, Dublin County Council's own figures on this when they, when they, when they looked at the base costs comparing what it might theoretically cost Dublin County Council to do it themselves as opposed to a private developer. But tens of thousands, even if they had the capacity, which they don't, to do it, you're talking about tens of thousands, 70,000, pounds more per unit to construct it. And then I, we, this, another thing that was going around, uh, oh, by the way, the cost is not, that's nonsense an issue. At the moment, interest rates are basically at zero. It would not be a problem at all for the county council to go to the, to go to the markets and to raise two hundred and fifty million 
for a capital project. Yeah, that's that's what Dublin County Council needs to do, isn't it, Gary? Go onto the markets to borrow two hundred and fifty million for a non-revenue generating capital project. Have you ever seen the non-compliance rates of uh, rents paid to councils from uh, affordable housing? Scary. So you're not getting that money back. That's just because not enough people pay rents, and because you're the council and you don't want people to be homeless, you're not going to evict them. Which creates a weird sort of perverse incentive, doesn't it? Well, you, you can't make them homeless because if you do make them homeless, then you have to house them. And then when you have to house them, you have to do house them in short term or temporary accommodation, which tends to be things like bed and breakfast hotels, which end up being more expensive than the rent they weren't paying in the apartment in the first place. So yeah, Dublin County Council, I, I've seen this one as well, of people being like, so we used to be able to build tens of thousands of houses, the councils, and now that we're so rich, we can't. Okay, and putting aside all of the things that are sort of questionable about that, if you have capacity for something, you can do things. If you then don't have capacity for something, you need to build back capacity before you can do those things. So even if the councils wanted to and had the resources to build these things themselves, they'd need to hire people. They'd need to actually build the capacity to build these buildings. And that's not a quick process for something of this scale. That would probably take years in and of itself. And then you'd be left with a permanent infrastructure, which would be incredibly expensive. Because you can't just build that infrastructure in order to do it and then just, and then just remove it. Well, that I think is also a good point about why do the councils not have that infrastructure still? Because it's very expensive. Also, by the way, I'm sceptical about the notion that they ever really had this capacity anyway. I mean... It, there may have been times it was, but I know that for a large part, portions of the period of the first few decades of the state, certainly councils were closely involved in construction and providing maybe cheap loans or guarantees to private builders. But they tended to be working with private builders a lot of the time. Uh, the extent that they were ever large-scale builders purely by themselves now maybe they were at times I, I don't know but i'd like to see the numbers on that no i think your understanding of it is correct but to be honest i don't know enough about the kind of more early years of the state about what the status of it was then but they may have actually been mostly building themselves at that stage but when you look at the later years it's it's absolutely done primarily with private builders because that makes sense but listen fact is today Right now, when we're talking and have been talking for years, and by the way, Gary, you and I have been talking about a housing crisis for a lot longer than people who are talking about a housing crisis, because it seemed absolutely clear, I think, to a, a few of us. God knows we weren't, we didn't have the figures that were available to the uh, to the cabinet that with the houses that weren't being built, and with the population, and with the recovery in the economy. And with the abolition of, for amongst other things, the regulations that have been introduced and the, aboli and the abolition of uh, the bedsits, that the market in Dublin was just going to get tighter and tighter and tighter, more and more competitive, and more and more people were going to be squeezed out, and we were heading for a homelessness crisis, which was just going to get worse and worse, because nobody was going to do anything about it, concrete. Now, that's where we are. We are where we are with the council. They don't have that capacity. There is absolutely no way they can suddenly invent that capacity. 
and response to that in response to some kind of utopian socialist dream where the state controls the means of production and provides all these goods for the people in order to say well that's what we want they've said no we won't we won't build these 800 houses and this is just one i mean it's one dramatically bad example but it's not the only example and it's not going to be the last of them sometime or some long time ago i remember being in saying slightly facetiously that when you looked at the record of dublin county council for the last god knows how long you started to understand why corruption had become such a, a thing in planning in dublin because in, it had become a necessity that absent brown envelopes not a house would have been built in dublin because the knee-jerk reaction of so many interest groups was to say no 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 and the only way he actually got a house built was by going in and giving a good decent bung that the only thing that saved dublin was corruption well i mean that's that's the thing it can actually let you build things yeah but, I, I mean tony gale were on the right side of this however this is not really a party political issue although i have generally found the more left-wing parties tend to be worse on this. I think because they find it a little bit easier to find an, an acceptable excuse. And that, by the way, is, is all this is. The public-private uh, mix, The you know, it's not affordable for the area. These are all just excuses. So, I mean, we saw Colin Brophy, who's a Fine Gael TD. He had lodged, uh, he objected to planning of, I think it was 600 apartments in his area at the end yeah. of last year. And again, what was uh, it? Was a beautiful line, Michael. It was it was beautiful, shameless. It was um, while I will always accept uh, the need for housing and the severity of the homelessness crisis, I will never accept bad building or improper locations and mm. bad planning. And it was just it was it was it was wonderfully shameless. You had to you had to just be astounded by it. Uh, because it's always bad planning. It's always bad for the area. Did you see Aaron O'Reilly's comment today? Keep on trucking? No, although, well, a variation. More don't keep on trucking, I think, would have been the sense of it. Was rather, he was obviously delighted that the uh, development had been killed off. I don't think Aidan Aidan has ever seen a development in North Dublin that he wouldn't have happily put his, a bullet through his head. You know, we may comment, but Aidan O'Reardon wants to get out of the Shannon and objecting to every planning proposal known to God got him back into the doll. Although that's not... This is actually an interesting point here. Um, TDs generally don't object to a lot of planning. What they will tend to do is they will tend to put in a note or letter of concern. Yeah. Which basically highlights potential issues with the build, mm. but doesn't go so far as to say that, you know, therefore they oppose the bill. Because if they oppose the build, you could have things like what you're now seeing, where people go, why do you love people being homeless, you bastard? So what happens is you, you put in your note, and then the councillors of your party use the note to kick the living shit out of the planning uh, process until everything dies. And then it's known in the area that the TD was responsible for that, as along with the, uh, with the councillors. But there's no record that anyone can point to and go, well, you no, you didn't want that, because they'll go, I, I never said that. I simply 
pointed out uh, issues that I thought should be more fully considered. The fact it was rejected simply shows that uh, I was correct in that. Well, of course, Adon's comment was to the effect that he was delighted to see this happen because finally we have to understand that we can't keep making the mistakes of before that of the past and expecting different outcomes so apparently this development in ways that are not quite clear to me was a revisiting of all of the mistakes of the past and was going to produce the same er outcomes that those errors had produced what it has i've looked for the explanations of what those terrible errors are in this case and they're not yet clear to me but i, I i'm sure i will find them you see, the problem with politicians for this, and not all of these politicians, is it's a basically it's a, it's a zero risk game votes wise, isn't it? Because the people who are homeless that would otherwise be housed, well, you're not losing their vote, but the people who live there whose houses might now, God, you'd have to be incredibly cynical, wouldn't you, to say that people are objecting to the building of houses because it might lead to a diminution in their house price. That would have to be incredibly cynical to think that was actually what was going on. House prices and homelessness are distributed problems. The consequences of them are kind of spread across society as a whole, mostly in the younger generation because they don't own homes generally. But as a whole, it's not really concentrated. But in any one area where you go, we're going to build housing there, the negative impact of that is now concentrated on the people in the area. Yeah. Which means they are more likely to say no, because it's never the perfect site. Somewhere else is always better, or there's a better way of doing it. And so the, the vote incentive for politicians, there are votes in stopping planning, there are basically no votes in supporting it. So as long as local councillors have this much influence over the planning process, nothing will be built. But the point I want to make on that, and this, is a, this I think is, is an important point to make about People. People and the public. There are things that people tell you they want or that they believe. But yeah. you're always better to watch what they do rather than what they say. Mm. So if politicians go around telling you that it's terrible about house prices and that the young are being forced out or that the homelessness crisis is just crippling, but yet they can never bring themselves to actually agree to any large-scale planning on the basis such as it might increase traffic, they don't care about those things. They care about votes. And I, I find it... Uh, I, I, I assume politicians would lie about things to their advantage. Actually, I assume most of them won't lie. They'll, they'll represent in a particular way, which is perfectly correct, but highly misleading. Yeah. But these none of these parties, like the Sinn Féin TDs, the Green Party TDs, the, in this case, Fianna Fáil TDs and most of the left-wing mishmash, none of them are acting like they care about homelessness or house prices or anything like that. Oh, no, you see, Gary, I, I don't want to be picky up on semantics, but in fact, that's precisely what they are doing. They are acting. That is what they are doing. They are acting as if, but acting not in the sense of they're doing, but acting as if they're on a stage. This again... I, Going back to the, what we talked about the Shannon before, this is simply a performative. This is a performative experience. This is nothing to do with doing things. 
This is to do with putting on a performance. And the role I am playing today is a person who cares deeply about people who are homeless, deeply about their communities and deeply about the unemployed. But this is not the way to go. No, we do care, but this is not how we should do it. Now, the reality is, of course, that means that nothing will be done and, the, and those people who are homeless will stay homeless. Nothing will be done for five years or eight years and then probably nothing will be done anyway. I do love the fact that the country as a whole, we have a very interesting left-wing mix because they're against a lot of the, the public taxation that in continental Europe or most of the world would be seen as the bread and butter of the left-wing parties. Reasonable, sensible taxation, let's say water taxation. Don't do that in Ireland. But I, there comes a point where... like. Most votes in Ireland are local votes. They're on local issues. They're not ideological. To an extent, they're economic votes in that the economy impacts on people and particularly their take-home pay. But Irish voters are absolutely getting the problems that they deserve. We deserve to have a homelessness crisis. We deserve to have houses that are totally unaffordable to people on the average industrial wage. These are the people we voted for. We continue to vote for them, and they at no point seem to become more well-equipped to tell voters, actually, no, you're wrong, we're going to do this, and it'll benefit you in the long run, but you're not going to like it. And that's why we have problems with the health service. It's why we have all of these problems. And I think the best thing to do, uh, the most likely thing to succeed, is to simply take the option away from politicians. You fix the Irish planning system not by getting politicians to act better. You fix it by moving to something like the American model, where if you don't own the land, you don't get a view. And you fix <laughs> the health service not by pumping more money into it or making a one-tier system. Well, actually, you do fix it by making it a one-tier system, but you privatise the entire thing. You simply remove all political interference from it. And then the private companies will do what needs to be done which is pretty clear to everyone, but absolutely unacceptable because there are more votes in people who work in the health service than there are votes from people who would like to see the health service fixed. And also, Guy, that would mean that people would be out there making profit, profit out of health service provision, profit out of building houses. And we are, that's fundamentally wrong. Profit motive is fundamentally wrong. Why are they doing everything they can to push house prices up? ensuring a profit when those houses are sold. Well, actually, there is a slightly funny thing about, about house prices generally, and this is not just in Ireland. This we've, We see this very definitely in in England. We saw, we've seen it at different times in the United States. People on the right have historically regarded inflation as a bad thing, okay? Inflation is a thing that we don't like. Inflation is something we... Different governments, when they come in, they try and squeeze it out. You raise interest rates you uh, control spending, you squeeze it. The one type of inflation that people like for what is house inflation, and this is going back for a long time, rather than seeing it just as another form of price inflation, because they know that it makes people feel wealthier. It makes people feel that they have done well. And therefore, there is an active sense that getting those... Uh, getting house prices up is going to redound well. If you go back, now, again, you want to be very, very cynical to believe this, but there are a gary of those people who feel that if you go back to the uh, Fine Gael government 
uh, which came in after the crash, that there was actually a policy which was actively hostile after the first couple of years. When there, For the first couple of years, there was no housing market at all because then after the crash, everything just stopped. But when we should have been looking at the beginning of a, of a return fund, that the the expansion in house production was actively stymied because we liked it was a good thing as far as the government was concerned from finnegan was concerned at the time increases in house prices were a good thing because people were going from the position where the house prices had collapsed and the value of the house was now less than the mortgage they were as they said underwater but when they got out and as prices continued they they got out of negative equity they got and they started to feel more and more prosperous as their houses became more and more valuable and precisely the people who were in that position were the kinds of people who perhaps would be voting for Fine Gael. therefore Fine Gael didn't see that this was necessarily a bad thing that this would have any bad outcomes now you'd have to be a very cynical person to believe that but i know gary there are people out there who'd see that Fine Gael in that position actually whether they were consciously aware of the fact that they were moving towards a situation which was going to generate a problem with homelessness is another question but they were perfectly happy to see the see a situation where house prices were grow, were growing aggressively. I mean, I I have talked to some TDs from various parties who have put forward that view, but I think in general it doesn't even rise to that issue. It is simply that homeowners don't like large new builds. Existing homeowners don't like them, and it's not even a price issue. They just don't like them. Also, the the thing about houses and house inflation and people feeling wealthier. There are certain circumstances in which you could absolutely use that inflation to increase your standard of life. You could try and leverage that. Yeah. Most people don't, though. So it's one of those odd ones where technically, yes, you are wealthier. But for most people, it's an absolutely unrealized wealth. You don't do anything with it. Most people are not taking out new loans against the increased value of their home or trying to flip it and buy a different property. They just stay there. No, no, no. People aren't deciding. Okay, I'm going to leave my my small two bed in Dorky, and I'm going to buy a a small villa in Leitrim, and by leveraging the difference. No, people have their house and they stay in it. They live in it, but they enjoy the fact that it's worth more. Oh God, Gary, you're too young to remember, but I remember the the end of the last boom, and I can remember friends of mine who've been in England at in one or two of the property was there was a period of time where if you went out with people of a certain age all they talked about was the price of houses and the house at number 12 had went for so much and the house at number 16 had gone for so much but we have a conservatory and our garden is slightly bigger and i think we're better kept so we could get and oh god it was relentless it was just uh that's all people talked about was and they could see the physical excitement there. Do you know how much we paid? Go on, guess. Guess how much we paid for this. When we moved in here, John, John had just got the had just got the, the promotion in the service, and I just got my second the job and blah blah. And we paid, and now it's worth. And of course, I mean I can understand that. It's nice. It's like somebody who bought shares in Apple at Toppen's Hapenny and look at what my shares in Apple are on yeah, now. The problem there is that that's something you'll probably realise at some point. Like, you will at actualize some point, yeah. the gains. Whereas for a house, unless you die, which I don't assume most people are looking forward to. But a lot of people do. Look forward to dying? No, a lot of people do die. 
I mean, traditionally, yes, but yeah. who are we to assume that trend will continue? Well, I know that the past can't always be a guarantee of the future, but my, I, if I was going to have to put a bet on it, Gary, I'm going to put a bet on most people continuing to die. Okay, I'll go for the transhumanist future. And that their kids will end up with a nice little bonus that they can put a conservatory in the back of their house and increase the value of their house. Listen, anyway, listen, the, 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 point is, is, the point is made. The fact is, for whatever reason, house prices go up and politicians and you're right people don't like being told that 400 houses are going to be built at the back of yours they just don't i mean michael if you've ever objected to a planning thing and it wasn't on an actual credible serious ground when your children can't afford to buy a house that's your fault Oh, there is actually one one line I did want to quickly deal with. It's this. People saying that the fact the houses were of a certain price meant that they were no use to people in the community because they were too expensive. And I just wanted to make this point. Building expensive houses, assuming they are not so expensive that people will not move into them, will help those on lower income for the very simple reason that it will cause those with more money to move into those houses, freeing up space in smaller, more affordable houses. And if that doesn't happen, because the houses just won't sell, well, eventually the price will either have to drop or they'll go bankrupt. This no, this notion that if you're building something in a place that everybody who lives in that place already should be able to buy one of the things you're building in that place. Does sort of mean you're just never building in Dublin again? Where did that come from? I mean, do you remember there was all that talk about they were building uh, student accommodation? Uh, in, was it, it had something, it wasn't DCU, it was... Uh, oh, uh, yeah, DIT, the, the student accommodation, it would, it would be an over-concentration of students in the area, so we will allow the building of a massive new campus, and we won't allow the building of student accommodation, and what do you mean this will cause horrible problems? And it was in some way connected to the fact that the students would be living in this accommodation, but not local people. But so what? Yeah, they they said it would it would, it would lead to too many students in the area, and they didn't realise that by doing that, what was going to happen was that families who had been renting in the area, it was now going to be a case that landlords could make more money by renting a house out to you know ten students instead of a family and each student could pay less but cumulatively the landlord was making more which meant if your landlord didn't do that they were basically voluntarily taking a financial hit in order to keep you there and this just didn't seem to they were like well there's no student housing so the students will go away or or they'll rent right beside the place driving out the families and the working people and you will have effectively caused a significantly worse problem than you had to start with but again, it's just performance. It's a mo- this odd emotional thing. Oh well, defending our local communities without ever really explaining how are you defending them? How is this? How how is this helping anybody? No, well, it is because we've stopped them. You haven't stopped them. You haven't. You haven't put a. There were nobody put, to my memory anyway, nobody put roadblocks up around the where students were told, no, you can you can only come in on a day pass, 
But you have to be out of here by six o'clock because that's when the lecture is finished. Now, students, as you say, Gary, were still going to live there. And in fact, in the absence of large scale student accommodation, they're going to be competing for exactly the same rental accommodation that local low income families were, were, were competing for. And we're going to be driven out because, rightly, you're going to get eight students living in a gaff that a family of four would otherwise be living in. But obviously, if you're a, if you're a, if you're a landlord, then you're going to rent to the guys. They're going to give you more dollars. We are not a country that deals very smartly with planning. I mean, like I, I remember we were talking when the last batch of new environmental planning regulations were coming in. And everyone was so wonderfully self-congratulatory oh, about how this would mean we had some of the most energy-efficient houses possible. And you and I were discussing how that's great, but it means houses are more expensive. And we yeah, keep and you... doing this. We keep making houses more expensive and difficult to build. And then just going, why is it that no one can afford houses? And I would be less annoyed by it if it was a deliberate action as opposed to a lot of people just doing small things that are in their interest and not realizing what they're actually doing yeah, in, in, in the in, aggregate. In that context, I was, I, I was talking to you, and you made a very important point about this, I, I think. Which I was saying to you that uh, a, fr- a friend of my brother's, a guy he, he, does, he, 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 he deals with for work, was saying that he had, because he's basically located half and half between uh, the southeast of England and, and Dublin, and he had decided to build himself a house and he had decided to locate in in London now he's not in the heart of London but he's in sort of sort of the the, the suburbs bit I think possibly sorry if it's sorry it's you know, sorry is like nice sorry stockbroker bet that bit of it you know but he ended up I think he said the cost the the, the bill cost ended up being something like two hundred and eighty thousand and he said that for the same money in Dublin, he wouldn't have been able to get anything like what he was able to build in England. He said simply because of the the building regulations, because of the gap between building regulations in the UK and the, and, and and in Dublin and 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 Ireland. He said, for example, the difference between his heating unit, the the heat, the, the kind of heating unit he could. He could Use there, and you could use it. You, that by itself, I think, was something like 10, 10 or fifteen thousand quid extra if he'd done it in Ireland. And when you consider that, that's one part of it, and every little bit of that house is extra and extra and extra. It ends up being a hell of a lot of money. Now, people will say, "Ah, well, the problem with that is that UK, you know, it's being very short-sighted and they're not built to the same quality. And if you look at the standard of Irish homes, it's they are amongst the best in the world. And in fact, they are. You found a piece of research which showed that when they scored housing internationally for energy, we had scored 100%. And then that was before the new regulations had come in. But this is the point I want to get to, which is the point you were making. The problem here is, even if it's true, that all of these things are good for the quality of housing and they improve our housing stock. And the costs are all front loaded if you're trying to buy one. It's not that those costs are spread out over the 40 or 50 years that you might be living in that house. If you're a, if you're a 30 year old or 25 year old, whatever, and you're looking to buy that house, that extra lump of money, that extra 50 grand, that extra 100 grand, whatever it is, is right that's front-loaded. You have to pay it now. They don't give you the option of paying it up 
over 50 years. No, you have to pay it now. You have to get your get enough money to get your deposit. And remember, because of the our, our late little problems with banking, we now have uh, rules regarding deposits, which are maybe stricter than the parts of the rules regarding getting mortgages are stricter than they might be in other places. So getting the loan, getting the, the deposit together is already problematic. And you throw in all this extra money in it, and wow, you've created a problem for people to buy a house. Who, who could have said? It is actually quite interesting in that when we're talking about front-loaded, because on one level, it's it's a loan, so it's not actually front-loaded, it's spread across the life of it. But due to the banking restrictions and the limitations on how much you can actually uh, get in a loan, it is effectively front-loaded to a certain degree in that every time the price increases, a certain amount of people simply fall out of the uh, bracket that would allow them to afford a house because due to the restrictions on the amount that they can be loaned, they can't afford anything built to the new regulations. So it's, it's, it is a weird situation. It's, it's actually several things kind of coming together and making them worse. Uh, but it is, um, I mean, it, it is what it is. And, and we perfectly deserve it. We deserve this problem. We deserve the problems in the health service. Voters in a democracy deserve the problems that they have. Yep. And, uh, there is an interesting question then of if people keep voting for politicians who say they care about homelessness and things like that, while actively making the problem worse by killing any building, should we then say that the people themselves also don't actually care about those issues? They just think they care about those issues and say they care about those issues while acting in a way that is, at the very best, indifferent to them. I don't know. I, I always, it's situations like that, I always think of it. The example of Italy in the 1970s, as everybody does, I'm sure. I remember being told, I was talking to a, a, a coster of mine I used to teach. He was a lawyer, elderly lawyer, and he he was a very funny man, a bit of a cynic, he's a bit of a politics addict. And he said, you know, if you wanted to see what Italians really believed about anything, he said, go back to the 70s. By the early mid-70s, the Italian Communist Party, which had already been for some time, the largest communist party, the most successful communist party in the Western world, was getting to a point where it's bloody close to being overtaking the Christian Democrats. Which now the Christian Democrats at that stage had been they had been in power since nineteen forty eight, the first election. They they been the dominant party ever since then. And it got to the point where Aldo Moro went off to talk to whoever the leader of the communists at the time was, I think Berling where uh, to see if they would come to what they call historic compromise, and the communists would come into government. Anyway, Aldo Moro, as you may know, ended up in with some bullets in in his body, in and was and in in the boot of a car. So I think it's hard for us to imagine the idea that the Taoiseach could be kidnapped and and uh, murdered by a terrorist group. But that's what happened initially. Anyway, my political point was that when it looked like the communists might actually be on the point of winning the elections. Do you know what happened, Gary? Suddenly, a significant chunk of well-off, well-heeled communists decided that actually they had been socialists all of the time. They hadn't really meant the thing about being communists. And suddenly the Socialist Party started to go up in the polls and the communists started to recede and other parties came up because... While it was nice to be a communist when communists were never going to be actually a national government, when there was a prospect of the communists actually getting in, 
people's politics changed. So people's sentiment about what they want and how they vote isn't necessarily always what they have truly in their hearts. So when they, I think it's perfectly possible to say that people say they care about these things, but when it actually comes to signing the cheque, maybe they don't care quite so much. Mm, I mean, I hesitate to say that that about people because I've generally found most of the people, most of the public, are largely disengaged from politics. So it's hard to say what they do and don't think because if someone tells you that they have a particular care and you believe them, that they're able to project an identity of things, it's simply possible that the public see no reason to disbelieve that, even as those groups are making it worse, which is you know a very good marketing trick. Yeah, well, anyway, speaking, just before we go, since we're talking about democracies, I think there is just one little thing that we, we just want to mention before we go. I was delighted to see that in an age when democracy has been taking a bit of a beating, and we've seen the actions and the ructions and the circus that has been the United States and the United States elections, that China has decided in its role as a policeman for human rights and democracy, it's taken on, it's taken a strong position with the Americans and told the Americans to get their house in order. It was. Of course, we must offer congratulations to China on being elected to the UN Human Rights Council. We're a bit behind. It just never seemed like a good time to start talking about it. Um, but, you know, congratulations on, on getting elected. And um, it is it is a proud moment, Michael. It is the first state I can think of which appears to actively be engaging in genocide to be promoted to it. So that's a big step for the UN. Well, now, Gary, come on. I mean, you know, you're, you're always knocking China with this whole genocide thing, you know? And, okay, maybe, maybe they are doing some kind of a genocide thing against the Uyghurs. And maybe, okay, maybe they have launched some kind of process of persecution and extermination of, say, the Falun Gong, and maybe they're knocking down churches for, uh, for Catholics and they're arresting evangelical Protestants and torturing their pastors and things like that. Maybe that's happening, Gary. But I'll tell you what they're not doing. They're not building houses in Jerusalem. Nobody can accuse them of that. And I like, I'm glad to see that Simon Coveney has his priorities right, that he's taken a strong line with that old house building in Jerusalem and not being distracted by people like you banging on about China and genocide and religious persecution and torture and that kind of stuff and taking away the human rights of people in Hong Kong and all that. Because, okay, listen, no system is perfect, Gary. It's a big country. It's tough to organize there, there are cultural differences as uh, i believe court county council told me when i asked them about you their, know uh, and, and, and simon coveney is a is a cork man and probably was maybe involved in explaining to cork county council the nature of these cultural differences yeah i i think it is we were talking about how people act versus what they say they care about and i i find it quite interesting that Israel, deeply unpopular in Ireland. In general, we'd say the uh, the tone towards Israel, deeply negative, and has been for quite a time. Uh, pretty much since the left-wing 
a government lost power. But we're very open to saying about that. But every time I ask the Department of Foreign Affairs about China, I simply get told that we have privately raised our concerns, assuming I get told anything at all. And it's just, it's odd, Michael, that when there's a country that we have massive financial links to, suddenly all the people who tell me they care about human rights in politics develop a little bit of selective mutism, a little bit of a, a sudden sudden gap in the old awareness. I well, mean, maybe they've just been talking uh, yeah. to Giancarla a bit too much and, you know, picked up a little bit of uh, Chinese information that way. Has it been Has it been definitively proven that the Uyghurs are human? I, I'm not sure if that testing has been carried out. Because, uh, well, we know that a lot of testing has been carried out about their suitability for the use in, say, transplants to human beings. But you know what, Gary? Pigs, orangutans, you know, lots of different animals have been used for that kind of thing. So, you know, I'd like to see some science on the whole yoga thing because, you know, maybe it's not a human rights issue. And maybe Simon knows that and we just don't know that. We're, we're working the basis because they look like humans. I mean, Ireland does have a very poor record on, on animal welfare, so that might actually explain quite a lot of it. Maybe it's that the Palestinians are, are human and Uyghurs are just not quite. I mean, they're human enough that you you, know, you let them make your shoes in slave yeah. camps. Yeah, sure. But uh, not so human that they have human rights. They're human, but not quite human enough. Hmm. Almost like we're all equal, but some are more equal than others. <laughs> You should paint that on a wall somewhere. Hmm. Hmm. Hopefully no one else has ever written that phrase. Four legs bad, yeah. two legs good. Uh, so anyway, China has come out, and we've moved on from congratulating it, to uh, reviewing the US human rights record. And they have had some thoughts, Michael, that uh, China... That, that some things they want to recommend to the, to the US for... You know, to really improve it and bring it in line with human rights, which kind of reminds me when before the Eighth Amendment, the fact we would get keep getting summoned to the UN, to their Human Rights Council, and we'd have to stand there while countries which thought it perfectly acceptable to hang homosexuals from cranes in a public square told yeah. us about our absolutely barbaric treatment and Irish diplomats, because Irish diplomats are very pleasant to everyone would simply say, well, yes, you know, it's a terribly difficult situation, but we're working on it, as opposed to, um, you know, perhaps a more undiplomatic response, which might have showed that um, we are not on the same moral level as some well, of the countries who are yeah. castigating us. I suppose what they said, really, Gary, was like Corrupting Council, they would explain it was a question of cultural differences. Yes, I mean, you know, the sort of people who would say, well, you you have to allow abortion, but if we had then followed up with, and if a woman commits adultery, could we publicly execute her with, yes, absolutely, that's perfectly in line with human rights laws. Yeah. The, the ability of the Human Rights Council of the UN to be loaded with every despotic, savage, brutal country in existence is actually very impressive. Yeah. And, I mean, obviously a sign of the fall of the existing international orders, China and other countries act to corrupt institutions, largely built by an American power, which is uh, 
weakening and uh, which will eventually be corrupted and collapse entirely, leading to a massive amount of either bloodshed or the imposition of a system modelled on probably Chinese or Russian characteristics, which will be far more brutal and less tolerant of everyone involved. Uh, can I, sorry, uh, cut across, but you're, you're, you mentioned hanging people from cranes. I do that uh, occasionally, yes. Yeah, I, I, it just... Uh, there was, it's not directly connected to what we're talking about, but I have to say there was a, there was a rich comedy uh, to see so many uh, outlets for representing the LGBT community appraising Pakistan. I don't know if you saw this story, Gary, that Pakistan has opened the first school for transgender students. And isn't this wonderful? And, you know, we should follow the example. Uh, Iran has uh, very liberal uh, laws regarding uh, the, tra- the in helping and encouraging the transition of people and transgenderism uh, it doesn't seem to have occurred to people that the reason you're getting people so many people in these countries trans who are transitioning in their gender is because if you're a gay man and you want to have a relationship with a man and you just stay a man and you get caught then they kill you but if you transition and you become transgender, then you can have now how satisfactory that relationship may be for you, and how you may enjoy your your role. I don't know, but as it, as you say, you don't end up hanging from a crane, and I think that that may be part of the explanation at least. I think it's at least worth considering. But just Gary, honestly, all the praise and oh my God, isn't this great? This is wonderful. This is so progressive, lads. Would you? Oh, come on! In most countries. Where you to say, well, by the way, if you indulge in this behaviour, we'll execute you, unless you do this, in which case it's perfectly fine. I think human rights organisations would say that that might be state coercion to an invasive medical procedure. Just, just, just maybe. I mean, I would be interested to see what the Irish Council for Civil Liberties uh, would think of it. Oh, actually, interesting point. The Irish Council for Civil Liberties got a shout out from Batrick today in the Senate for their, um, you know, their great work in driving forward hate crime and hate speech legislation. So that's about where the uh, civil liberties crowds are in Ireland at the minute. But you know, Gary, at least we're not unique. I don't know if you saw the ACLU in the United States, which was the the great defender of free speech. Uh, One of their leaders, uh, leading uh, spokespeople, was uh, involved in getting uh, a couple of books removed from bookshelves across across the United States. Because of the nature of... I mean, they said they weren't involved. What was it? The um, transgenderism, the rising one, threat to our children? Something like yeah, that? Yeah. One in the Schreier book is basically about how the transgender movement is... is uh, was it? Is, 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 a threat, is a threat to our daughters. It's about the effects of using like both early hormone treatments and then the surgeries and... The use of it with uh, with teen and, and the use and abuse of this kind of thing with teenage girls. The other, oh god, I can't remember the other offhand, and I know the book actually. I've started reading the book, but when you get the people from the ACLU organizing books being taken off shelves, you know that you know it <laughs> the liberal project has ended. Well, the, the, the thing there is they're, they're effective at it in the same reason for the same reason that people in Ireland driving things like hate speech are effective on it. Because they care, and most people don't give a shit. But also, let's face it, also they have 
they have the cover of their past, or if, even in the case of the LCU, their past at least. Here, maybe not so much, but they have the cover of their their costume. Well, if the people whose job it is to, is to defend civil liberties are in favour of this legislation, well then, obviously, it can't be a threat to civil liberties. But I, just, just to close on the, the China thing, here are the things that China recommends that the US does. So root out systemic racism, address widespread police brutality. Sorry, so, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, no, you can't just do that. Re- repeat the first one? The, the very first point they made was root out systemic racism. China is telling the United States to root out systemic racism. Okay, good. Address Number two. widespread police brutality. <laughs> police brutality. Yes, yeah, so they make sure that they shoot them when they're, they only when they're, dead after <laughs> and combat discrimination against african and asian americans michael have you ever had the pleasure of having a conversation with a, a chinese businessman about black people i have actually been in the company of some and i i, I wouldn't have these are not conversations that i would have felt being overheard in public it's the sort of conversation I had only ever heard before coming from the sort, you know, you know, a very particular south of like Rhodesian South African. The kind of thing you might have come across in a diner in Alabama in 1936. I mean, even maybe before that. <laughs> yeah, they are not the most... Uh, and Asian... PC. If we're looking at the Asian, we've talked about the Uyghurs, we've talked about the Falun Gong, but... It, they're doing this to pretty much all the ethnic minorities outside of the, the Han. So, well, I mean, you've... The Tibetans aren't getting the best out of it. No, no, no. So then they say, urge politicians to respect people's right to life and health and stop politicising and stigmatising the COVID-19 pandemic. Oh, yeah, which right. Which just reminds yeah. me of those videos of Chinese police welding people into their apartments. No, that's what it's saying. Stop calling it the China virus. Take holistic measures to eliminate political polarization and social inequality. The Chinese, having a totalitarian system of one-party rule, have a sec- I mean, very effectively ended political polarization. There is no polarization of politics in China. No, polarization requires there to be two poles. Yeah, it is unipolar. Yeah, and you've got the CCP or you've got the secret prisons. <laughs> Not not so secret. Combat the increasingly severe religious intolerance and xenophobic parties. No. Combat religious intolerance. Oh, this is Again, the thing that got the Uyghurs in the camps, which is kind of where all the other migrant groups are headed, but the Uyghurs are way ahead of the curve, was largely religious intolerance. Yeah, and I, I think if you were to ask Catholics who are still loyal to, say, the Vatican or Protestant evangelicals, they would have a particular view on religious tolerance in China also. Point five, stop incarcerating migrants, including migrant children, and guarantee the rights of migrants. Okay. Six, address proliferation of guns and guarantee people's rights to life. Well, of course, it's true in China. They're very careful about the proliferation of guns. Only one group of people gets to get a gun in China. Seven, lift coercive unilateral measures. I would say particularly those directed at China. Or, for example, those directed at Australia. I, 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 well, I mean, the Australian wine industry was asking for it, Michael. With their Bastards. whole, let there be an investigation into the cause of COVID. Ah, oh, yeah. And then again, the, I, the WHO did launch an investigation into the origins of COVID. 
And that has been, um, I think everyone has just agreed that China has just taken that over. Yeah. Basically. So here's, here's the one I really like, Michael. Go on. And um, to, to put this into perspective, I will just say that I have talked to someone personally who was repeatedly tortured by the Chinese police, including at one point being sodomized with an electric baton. Or a stun baton, I think they were called. So, which apparently, from what I've heard about other people, is actually a pretty common thing if you displease the Chinese police. So number eight is stop torture in anti-terrorist operations. So, only anti-terrorist operations. Well, yeah, and also for, halt for, military intervention in other countries and stop killing civilians. Like I'm, in India or Kashmir. Or Kashmir, or I'm sure they will very much remember this particular point should they ever invade Taiwan. Oh, the Kurila. Yeah, well, I suppose that. Taiwan isn't a different country, so this doesn't apply at all. True. Then you're just peacekeeping. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a police action. And nine, and this... Oh, chef's kiss, Michael. Stop interfering for political reasons in other countries' internal affairs under the pretext of human rights. Can you imagine... Can you imagine what it was like in the room where they were writing that list? As a delegate of the Human Rights Council of the UN. I'd like to imagine for a start that there was a hell of a lot of really good Australian wine on the table. And this was being done after dinner. This is kind of an after dinner thing. Oh, we'll do that after. We'll have, we'll have our dinner first. They're sitting around drinking the Penfolds 95 or the Grange. You know, top top quality stuff. And saying, yeah. Let's see how we'll, we'll get this cheaper next year when the, the arse falls out of their economy. And they're doing it. They must have been pissing themselves laughing. Yeah, I think when you get to nine of the things that the US has to do on human rights, and then it's you stop interfering using the pretext of human rights, you're just fucking with America at that point. I mean, that's, that's just... <laughs> that's nuclear power trolling. Really is. That is global power, nuclear power trolling. That is top class. <laughs> that's brilliant. Oh, that is good. So I thought, yeah, that's a that's a lovely, uplifting thing. Uh, and I hope we see more of these from China as it continues sitting on the uh, Human Rights Council. I'm sure they will be a force for real long-term structural change, Michael. Like, like uh, Somalia and Saudi Arabia and Sudan have in the past. No, I think the ambitions of the Chinese are slightly beyond that. Oh, I definitely am sure they are. I just feel that Somalia isn't quite the threat to international order that China is. Although, to be honest, if it's not China, it's someone else. The international order was built largely after World War II, and most of the countries involved in building it have weakened substantially. Nature abhors a vacuum, and the international order they built will either fall or be corrupted. And if it's not China, it'll be someone unless particularly America is able to kind of not just rebuild itself, but rediscover its own sense of will. Because it's still got the weapons and it's still got the the economy. Although in the next decade, China could overcome that. But they don't have the will they used to have. It doesn't matter how many guns you have, you can't pull the trigger. You have to discover man- rediscover manifest destiny. That's what they need. Which is their version of the mandate of heaven. Anyway... I think I did once find the mandate of heaven in a drawer somewhere. <laughs> so that you kind of you put it down, you 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 put it somewhere safe, and you can never find it again. Anyway, I suppose we should leave it there for the time being. We should return to the to the good people uh, 
When? Friday, I suppose? All things being equal. Friday would be the traditional day, yes. But other than that, all things, I would abjure our dear listener to stay well and to stay out of the wet because it's just nasty. Light the fire, stay in and listen to other podcasts you haven't listened to yet. Mind yourselves, we'll talk to you again on, on Friday. All the best.